Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn. If you could please stand for today's scripture reading, which comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see all of you this morning, and we are very glad that you have joined us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn. I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is always my privilege to be able to open God's Word with and for you. Today, of course, is Father's Day, so we want to thank and honor the dads among us, even as we recognize that days like today are difficult for some due to broken relationships, the death of a father, or perhaps the unrealized desire to become a father. In 2006, I became a dad to Seth. It is one of the greatest joys of my life, and I find it a great joy even as I take seriously the responsibility that it is to be one. Similarly, in 1999, I became a husband to Sheila, which is also an incredible joy and a great responsibility. And every day of these last almost 23 years, Sheila and I have been learning what it means to be who God said we were on that day. I was declared to be a husband, she was declared to be a wife, and we've been spending 23 years and the remainder of our days figuring out what it means to be who we were on that day, who we are today, and who we will continue to be as husband and wife until death parts us. Together, we are one flesh with Christ as our common and eternal bond, joined together for many purposes, none greater though than to be an earthly reflection of Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church, that's us, and the church's submissive and loving response to Christ, her groom. That's the picture of marriage. That's what the second half of Ephesians 5 is all about if you read it. The Bible, interestingly, begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church. So marriage, my friends, is central to God's design, and it is an incredible picture of what it means that he loves us and what it means for us to love him. 
And just as God uses our responses to government or to our employers as a witness unto him, which is what we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks, there is also a unique and extraordinary opportunity for husbands and wives to declare the gospel and his glory to a watching world and to one another. In and through how husbands and wives love, respect, honor, and submit as they are called to. Even, by the way, as we learn in today's passage, if our spouse does not love or follow Jesus Christ. Friends, today's passage is really a continuation of where we have been over the past couple weeks, which one could potentially summarize this way. Submit to and serve others as Christ has served you, even if you don't think they deserve it. Even if you don't think they deserve it. As chapter 2 finished up, Peter reminded us of what it means to be elect exiles and living stones in the kingdom of God, of which Christ is the cornerstone. It means that the love of Christ and the life of Christ is on display through you and me who know him. In these first seven verses of chapter 3, Peter has not shifted his focus from the hostile, worldly environment that he has described in chapter 2. He has simply moved on to one more social structure, which can also be worldly and hostile, though it is not intended to be so, marriage. Specifically, a marriage in which one partner is married to an unbeliever. That's the focus of these seven verses. And that's why chapter 3 begins with the word, likewise. Peter is continuing a thought. A thought, by the way, that is not unique to him, in that the Apostle Paul said very similar things as Peter did in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what we find Peter talking about today in these seven verses can also be found in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and in others. So this is not a unique idea. Peter's instructions as found in these seven verses and as Seth read them for us are for wives to be subject to their husbands and for husbands to honor their wives. For wives to be subject to their husbands and for husbands to honor their wives. Now, we have already sailed through these choppy waters before in previous sermons, but here we are again. Chapters like these, honestly, are why we go through entire books of the Bible when we teach. If we didn't, honestly, it would be tempting to want to skip over chapters like this one right? Just to avoid a potentially offensive or misunderstood or hot-button topic. Now, I'm kidding in saying that we would want to skip it, but believe me when I say that, it's easy to understand why people would be tempted to. Still, we believe that like every other passage within Scripture, every jot and every tittle of every word in 1 Peter as well as the rest of the Bible is perfect, and it has been breathed by God, and that if God said it and we have the privilege of reading it, which we do, we should take it very very seriously and ask God by his spirit to reveal its meaning and its application to us. So that's what we're going to try to do today. So let's look again at verses 1 through 2. I'll read it for us. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that 
Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Likewise is a word that is similar to therefore, in that it is an inextricably tied to whatever was just said. So if you want to know why likewise is there, just go back a few verses or go back a few chapters. Peter had spent the previous portion of this letter encouraging his readers to love and to fear God, to love and to honor others, as demonstrated perfectly in the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what likewise is referring to. Specifically, Peter addresses our interactions with unbelieving government leaders, with unbelieving employers. In that context, it would have been slaves and masters. And now here in chapter 3, he gives similar instruction to spouses. But as I said, not just any spouse. In verses 1 through 3, Peter has a word for husbands and wives of those who do not believe in Jesus. That's what he means when he says those who do not obey the word in verse 1. He's referring to non-believing husbands. Now, in this time and place, it's important to understand that members of a family were usually of one faith and one religion. It was husbands who made those decisions, and yet there were cases in the early church among those elect exiles where wives had come to Christ before their husbands had, or potentially husbands before their wives had, and both needed instruction as to how to handle such a situation. And Peter's first instruction was for wives to be subject to your own husbands, also translated as submit yourselves to your husbands or be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. You get the idea. One commentator defined submission this way, which I thought was really helpful. Submission is to voluntarily yield your rights or will to someone else's wishes or advice as an expression of love for that person. To voluntarily yield your rights or will to someone else as an expression of love for that person. And just to be crystal clear, my friends, to be subject to or submissive to or responsive to someone else does not mean that you are inferior any more than it means someone leading is superior. God has established equality in importance and worth and dignity and honor for all men and for all women. But he has also, just as importantly, established a diversity of roles. Equality in importance and worth and dignity and honor, but diversity in roles. Do you understand? That's what's happening here. That's what we're reading about here. So be assured, my friends, male headship is, in fact, God's intent and command for the home and for the church. It was established in the created order that we find in Genesis It has remained throughout biblical history as God set aside a people for himself, and it has been made manifest in the church of Christ, of which we are now part. 
And this established and created order is foundational to God's good design. This is how he has wired things to be. Which means, and this is important, that these commands and this created order is never out of date and it is never antiquated. And it does not take a backseat to any culture's supposed social or political progress. It's never antiquated. It's never out of date. And God's word is never going to take a backseat to any cultural, supposed social or political progress. As such, a wife does not have the freedom to be unsubmissive if she doesn't think her husband deserves it. Any more than husbands get to treat their wives like property or lesser than or to abdicate their role as the leader of their home and church. There is, however, one exception to the command that we are given to obey those that God has given authority. Look at those heads perk up. The one exception. As it is with all other calls to submission in Scripture, if anyone with God-given authority commands you to sin, meaning to do something that God has clearly prohibited or to refrain from something that God has clearly commanded, that command can and must be ignored. The call to submit does not mean that you sin or disobey what God has commanded. Because in all things, it is God who must be obeyed before men. Always. It is God who must be obeyed before men because he alone is the final and the ultimate authority. Continuing in verses 3 through 4, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Friends, we live in a world that is fairly obsessed with the external. But, but, we are perfectly created and loved and known by a God who made us and looks within. We live in a society that is obsessed with the external, but we have been made and created and been loved perfectly by a God who looks within. When God sent his prophet Samuel to seek out the next king of Israel, and he came to the house of a man named Jesse, seven of eight of Jesse's sons stood before Samuel, and due to their physical stature and their attributes, Samuel was relatively impressed with all of them. But God was not. Samuel was impressed. God was not. He said no to each one. So, in Samuel's eyes, in the world's eyes, these were the kings. In God's eyes, they were not. Picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Ultimately, friends, God chose David, the eighth and the youngest of Jesse's sons, but he didn't choose him because he was ugly. Do you know that in verse 12 of that same chapter, it says that David was handsome and had beautiful eyes. But that was not why God set his love on him or chose him as king. It was because of what God saw in here. So hear me well, my friends. God is not opposed to physical beauty. It was he who gave beauty to us. And it is his intention that we treat our bodies as the temples that they are for his glory. So this is not an instruction for wives to stop wearing makeup, nice clothes, or jewelry. Rather, it is to remind women what is primary and what is truly beautiful lies within them. What is primary and what is truly beautiful to the Lord lies within you not outside of you, to let your main emphasis be inward adornment and holy beauty. When we were in the series on 1 Timothy, we talked through this verse, but I think it's worth repeating, especially in light of what we're talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, here's the better way, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We have all been around men and women who are beautiful on the outside, and then they speak. Yeah? Beautiful on the outside, and then they start talking. In the same way, I think we have also met men and women who grow increasingly beautiful to us the more that we see what's going on inside of them and get to know who they truly are. That's what we're talking about here. External beauty, as we just read, is of some value, but ultimately it doesn't last. We all know that. Whereas inner beauty is of the greatest value and according to verse 4 is imperishable. Inner beauty, my friends, is imperishable. So wives, win your husband's affections and lead them to Jesus, not only through your physical beauty, but through the love and the respect that you show them, the pure life that you live in Christ, and with a spirit of gentleness and quiet humility, physical beauty and holy inward beauty. Don't bulldoze your husband. Don't lecture him or play the part of the Holy Spirit unto him. Practically, that means that you don't preach to him or hide gospel tracts wherever he's hanging out or sick a pastor on him when he's not ready for it, right? Ladies, God has wired your husbands to respond to the former things and to reject the latter. If Jesus wouldn't say or do that thing to or about your husbands, neither should you, right? If Jesus wouldn't say or do those things to or about your husband, neither should you. I think 
we all underestimate the effect that our life in Christ can have on those who know us. And as many have said, your life may be the only Bible that someone reads. St. Francis of Assisi said it this way, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Friends, listen, verbally proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is critical. So don't hear that quote the wrong way. It is critical where God gives openness and opportunity. After all, remember that Peter said in chapter 1, verse 23 of this same letter, that salvation comes through the Word of God. The Word of God is critical, and it will save. But it is equally important to reflect the gospel in how we live. It is equally important to reflect the gospel in how we live. So wives, your husband's response to the gospel may come not through what you say, but through who you are. Not through what you say, but through who you are. Without a word, Peter said, you may win them to the word. Without a word, you may win your unbelieving husband to the word. Moving ahead to verses 5 through 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So according to Scripture, some of the most beautiful women in God's kingdom are those who honor and respect their husbands, who do good unto others, and live according to his perfect love rather than according to fear. It was what Abraham's wife Sarah adorned herself with, according to these passages, and it is what the daughters of God for all times and places, you included, are to adorn yourselves with too. First, entrusting submission to God himself, who loves you and who knows you perfectly, and then unto those whom God has placed into your life. First, entrusting submission to God. Then, because of who God is, unto those whom God has placed in your life. As one commentator said it, quiet confidence in God produces in a woman the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, but it also enables her to submit to her husband's authority without fear that it will ultimately be harmful to her well-being or her personhood. It is quiet confidence in God that causes you to be able to submit to your husbands without fear. Ladies, your husband, along with any other Christian in authority over you, has not been given that authority for the purpose of exercising dominion over you or objectifying you, but rather to love you and care for you and honor you and protect you. That's why he's been given that authority. The why behind God's command to submit to your believing husband is in direct relationship to God's desire to love and care for you through him. That's his desire. It's his intent. And it is certainly within his ability. But where a wife finds herself married 
to an unbelieving husband, the command to submit still exists and it is in direct relationship to God's saving grace in your husband's life through you. Trusting God to save and to sanctify your husband in and through your loving submission to him. That is God's desire. But it starts with trusting in and finding your confidence in God. That's where it starts. Finishing up in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, there's likewise again, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I think it is verses like verse 7 that often get ignored or forgotten for some reason when discussing the manner in which women are to live as lovers and followers of Christ. It's verses like these that often get forgotten, as though all of the direction is for women. Can I point out what is obvious in verses like these? It is that every man, every man, woman and child of God in Christ is called to a life of submission and honoring one another. It is what we are called to as Christians. No one escapes it, whether it be teachers or bosses or government leaders or parents or pastors or spouses, and certainly God himself. There is a call at different places in our lives to submit, and we all are called to submit to God and his lordship. Everyone submits to someone at some point, and all of us, believer or not, will one day bow our knee and submit to God. And that's what Peter means by using likewise in this context. Not that husbands are to submit to their wives, that's not what likewise means, but rather they are to use their authority in a way that glorifies God and is in submission to God. They are to use their authority in a way that glorifies God and is in submission to him. At the time that the apostles' letters were written and distributed, what was shocking for believers to hear were instructions like those found in this verse, verse 7. Much, much, much more so than the things they would have heard or read in verses 1 through 6. Verse 7 would have been the thing that popped the eyes. The idea that women had a place in the church, the idea that they were heirs of God alongside men, and that men were to love and sacrifice and care for their wives as Christ does for the church, those things are radical. My friends, this letter was written in a time and a place where women had little to no independence with very few rights in society and almost no rights in marriage. For instance, at this time, if a husband caught his wife in adultery, he could kill her on the spot. No questions asked. But if a wife caught her husband in adultery, she could do nothing. Are you getting the picture? These are the people that Peter was writing to. This is the context in which Peter was writing. Now imagine a husband and a wife reading or hearing these seven verses where suddenly a husband had God-breathed duties and obligations unto his wife, and she was to be treated as someone 
of incredible value. The verbs attached to husbands in verse 7, specifically Christian husbands of non-Christian wives, are significant. Those verbs are significant. Verbs like live with, understand, and honor. To live with means much, much more than cohabitation. We're not talking just about living in the same dwelling. It assumes physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy. It means that you as husbands open up your lives to your wife. That you would be completely known by her and seen as you actually are by her. And that you would love her as you already love yourself. You don't need any help in loving yourself. So love your wife in the same way. The verb do so in an understanding way means much, much more than to tolerate. It means that you pay attention to your wives. You listen and you empathize and you sympathize. You ask questions where you don't understand and you do your best to discern what they're feeling and thinking even though it's hard. Husbands outside of God, no one should know your wife better than you do. No one should know your wife better than you do. To show honor means that you so love and care for your wife that they feel treasured and they feel valued, seeing themselves as equals, not as objects, not as employees. Husbands, the same goes for you. If Jesus wouldn't say or do that thing to or about your wife, neither should you. And if you want to know how you're doing, ask her. Do you feel loved? Do you feel treasured? Do you feel valued? Do you feel as though you are an equal? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. (laughs) The phrase weaker vessel is not a super popular turn of phrase in our modern culture. But this phrase is really simply in reference to the idea that, generally speaking, women were created as physically weaker than men. There are exceptions, of course, right? We've all seen ESPN. (laughs) Either way, husbands are to recognize his wife's weaknesses and limitations and then set his expectations accordingly and take seriously the responsibility he has to protect and to provide for the wife that God has given him rather than use those weaknesses to his own advantage. Perhaps most surprisingly to his readers, Peter continues in verse 7 by referring to believing wives as co-heirs. Heirs, generally speaking, are those who are legally entitled to the property of another upon their death. And normally, there are exceptions, it is children who have this role. Children are generally the heirs of parents. And that is the context of verse 7 here. God is the owner and the benefactor of everything. And his children are his heirs, beginning with Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. But incredibly, for those of us who are in Christ, men and women, we are God's heirs too. We are God's heirs too. That means, husbands, that your wives are also your sisters in Christ. 
in that you are both children of God and therefore the recipients of the inheritance God has given in Christ, including all the grace that he extends to us in this life and in the life to come. So husbands, treat your wives as you would a daughter of God. Treat your wives as you would a daughter of God because that is who she is. That is who she is. And to the degree, finishing in verse 7, to the degree that you fail to treat her this way, your prayer is for her salvation and any other spiritual good in your life will be hindered. So yes, pray for your spouse. Pray for your marriage. Share the word of God with your spouse as you have opportunity. But as you do those things, treat your wife as Christ treats her. Let your wife see and experience Jesus Christ in and through you. And to the degree that you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Disciples Church, as Christians, we are not of this world. This world is not our home, and yet we have been left in it. And we have been left here for one purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? It is to glorify God and to make Christ known. Why are you here? Why am I here? To glorify God and to make Christ known in everything and in every way to everyone. It's why we were born, it is why God saved us, and it is why we will remain here on earth until the day that he calls us home. We glorify God not by living as though we are superior to others, but by submitting ourselves to others just as Jesus did. That's what we've been talking about over these last few weeks, and it's what we're going to continue to talk about in the weeks to come. Mysteriously and miraculously, my friends, God brings salvation to others through the lives that we live. In that, it is Christ that God causes people to see through us. People aren't impressed by us. They're not saved by us. But Christ is magnified and seen in and through us. Whether it be those in government, our employers, or members of our own family. So in this first letter, Peter is writing to a suffering and a persecuted people who are looking for hope. And he finishes chapter 2 by letting them know where their hope is found and where they can find the power to live as they ought. Where is my hope found? And how do I live this way? Ultimately, our hope is found and the ability to live the way that we ought to live for them is found in the same place that it's found for you and I. Listen again to chapter 2, verse 21, where we were last week. For to this you have been called, listen, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is how the Bible translation, the message speaks the end of chapter 2. It says, this is the kind of life you've been invited to, the kind of life that Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so that you would know that it could be done. 
and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong, not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and you are kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. My friends, Christ suffered and served as an example for all who know and love and trust in him. His suffering, however, is unlike yours and mine in that it was to the point of death on a cross and it was on behalf of you and me. He himself had done no wrong and yet he suffered and yet he submitted. So if you find yourself suffering today or feeling persecuted today, wondering what this is all for and believing that something strange is happening to you in the midst of your suffering, look to Christ, your commanding officer, your persecuted and suffering Messiah, who was abandoned by his friends, accused of crimes that he did not commit, and who hung on a cross for you and me to die a death that you and I deserve to die. When you find yourself wondering what suffering is for, look to the cross of Christ and know that he not only understands, but that he is with you and in you, in and through those sufferings, seeking to refine you and to lead you to trust him and rely on him and glorify him in greater and deeper ways, both through the verbal and the visual declaration of the gospel. If you find yourself today struggling to consider others better than you consider yourselves or recoiling at the idea of submitting to someone else. Look to Christ, who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, who laid aside the glory that he was due, the glory that he had and the glory that he was due in order to take upon our humanity and become a servant of all. What kind of a God would do that? And he did it even for those who hated him and abandoned him and mocked him and scourged and crucified him. He didn't do it just for the people who loved him. My friends, Jesus was subject to both his parents on earth and to God the Father, though he wasn't lower than either of them. Do you realize that? This is willing submission born of love. And it is this Jesus who now lives in you if you are a Christian. Do you know what that means? It means that he is your motivation, but it also means that he is your power for Christian living. It is his spirit that points us to him and causes the Christ life to flow through us so that we, he would be seen in us by a watching world. So do you want to know where your motivation is found? In Christ. Do you want to know where the power to live the Christ life is? In Christ who is in you. I can't do it, Dave. No kidding, but he can. So be careful if you're a doer, 
and writing down all these notes going, all right, I got to do this and I got to do this and I'm not doing great at this, but I'm doing okay at that. To the degree that God reveals those things to you, it's his grace. But the power and the ability and the motivation to actually be changed and to be different is found in Christ's indwelling presence in you by his spirit. In order for us to suffer this way, and in order for us to submit ourselves to others, we must trust God's power to save others and to change and control the people and circumstances that we would love to see changed. That's the only way that we're going to be able to suffer well, and it's the only way that we're going to be able to submit, is to trust God's power to save and to trust God's power to transform and change in His way and in his time, rather than what we love to do, which is assume the responsibility to do those things for ourselves. Well, I'm going to see my wife saved. I'm going to see my husband saved. I'm going to change him. No. It's God who's going to save him or her. It's God who's going to change him or her, not you. Second, we must recognize that our life ultimately is not our own, but it is His. That's how you submit. Recognizing that you have been bought with a price and that this new life is to be lived by faith in the one who loved you and gave himself for you and now indwells you. My friends, Christ in us is the only hope we have of suffering and submitting as Christ did. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or will you insist on maintaining the illusion of control, trying in vain to change what is the equivalent of a leopard's spots, seeing your life as your own rather than his, with your personal comfort and your happiness and your glory as primary rather than his? Friends, we've been saying it for weeks, and we're going to keep encouraging you this way until God shuts us up. Remember who you are. And remember whose you are. Behavior change comes from identity change. You are elect exiles if you are in Christ. You are a living stone and you are the bride of Christ. So live accordingly by faith in Christ, submitting ultimately, ultimately to his loving lordship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for being our good and our gracious Father, the one by whom all earthly fathers are measured and the perfect example for us to follow as both biological fathers and spiritual fathers. We praise you, God, for your son Jesus who submitted to his earthly parents as a child, though it was he who made them and who also submitted to you his heavenly Father, though he is your equal. Out of love for your glory and for our eternal good, he did these things. Jesus has loved us to the uttermost, though we have been unfaithful to him as his bride. And yet his faithfulness is sufficient to make us perfect in your sight and to one day bring us to where you are for all eternity. By your Spirit, cause us to live lives of sacrifice and submission to and for those you have placed around us, and then to lead with love and gentleness as we honor those whom you have put under our charge. 
we confess, God, our inability to do these things and to live this way on our own. And we ask you to love, live, and lead through us by your Spirit and in Christ's name. Father, save the lost men, women, boys, and girls around us and let our lives reflect your glory to them that they might know life rather than death and salvation rather than damnation. Help us to abide and trust in you in all things and to bring you glory in all that we do and say. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.